0: Welcome to the fourth episode of Bureau 42's Silver Screen Superman series, celebrating the 75th anniversary of Superman's first appearance in Action Comics Number 1, June 1938. In our last podcast, we discussed the 1948 Superman serial starring Kirk Allen. Uh, now, that serial and this episode's serial, Adam Man vs. Superman, are the two highest-selling movie serials in history. They were shown on more screens, than anything else, and they did very well in terms of box office numbers for both of them. They were extremely popular, which is actually pretty lucky. The 1950 series was released as the movie sales were starting to fade out. And they really died off by 1956. And they were effectively killed by television. But this second serial also has an impact in terms of the history of Superman as far as the general public's concerned, and even beyond that. So the first one in 1948 was successful enough that they brought back a lot of the same talent to produce this one. So it still has George H. Plimpton as one of the writers. It still has Joseph F. Poland as one of the writers. They brought in a new collaborator by the name of David Matthews. Now, given the difference in tone, I suspect David Matthews is, is actually is or was a comic book fan. Because this one is much more in line with what we see in the comics. Right down to introducing... Some characters from the comics. As I said, it brought in a lot of the same talent. Uh, Spencer Bennett now has the sole directorial credit instead of shared credit. And since the last serial in 1949, he also directed a Batman and Robin serial, which we'll be talking about in 2014's big screen Batman series. That will probably just piggyback on the same podcast feed here. That one... Should be the February 2014 episode. We still have Kirk Allen uncredited as Superman. The studios were still applying the marketing idea that, oh no, they couldn't find a human who could really pull off Superman, so they just hired the real Superman to come in and play this part. Noel Neal was still playing Lois Lane, although now they've actually changed her look so she's a lot more in line with the comics. She's got shorter hair, dark hair, and the hairstyle is very consistent with the hairstyle that Lois was using in the comics in the late 1940s. Uh, Tommy Bond is still in here as Jimmy Olsen, and Pierre Watkin is still here as Perry White. In fact, a lot of the actors who played the Spider-Womans henchmen from the 1948 serial have returned as henchmen for the new villain in Adam Man vs. Superman, including the actor Wally West. The major new addition to the cast is Lyle Talbot, playing Lex Luthor and the Adam Man. Now, Talbot has a huge resume. It's actually a 57-year career, and he was active in the acting community right up until age 85. He's had guest spots on numerous well-known shows. Some of his later appearances were in series like Who's the Boss? But he could very well be best known for his role as the general in Ed Wood's Plan of from Outer Space, as well as roles in other Ed Wood films. So, well get into the production a little bit, then we come back to the plot and some of the significance of Lex Luthor and the way he's handled here. So the production is still done in a very similar fashion to the 1948 serial. Uh, they're still using animation to represent Superman in flight. So Kirk Allen would crouch or jump and then they'd dry in of flying away. Now they've gotten rid of the little dust burst around his feet, so they've gotten better at lining things up in terms of where he is on screen. They use a lot of under-cranking as well to represent the super speed action. Now, undercranking is a term that's not used as much anymore. Back in the earliest days of cinema, when they were recording things on film, the projectionist had to manually crank the film, both for recording and for projecting. So this worked fairly well early on when they were basically animated postcards, and that's all movies were, often 30 or 40 seconds each. Precise timing wasn't that important. Uh, Sometimes some theater exhibitors would speed up or slow down rate they cranked to change the playback speed and just do it for comedic effect in terms of playing with the audience. So under-cranking when you're recording film means you're cranking more slowly than you're supposed to. So you're recording fewer frames of film in a given length of time than are anticipated. So the result at the time is when you're under-cranking and maybe only recording 16 frames a second instead of 24 because you're cranking more slowly, then what really happened in a second is recorded in... Two thirds of a second of film. So when it's played back at normal speed, things seem to be going a lot more rapidly. This is mostly used for Superman super speed effects, but it's also used for Cars careening down roads and things like that, just to get that feel. There's a lot of other trick photography, including fades. And part of what they did to keep the budget down was reuse a lot of footage between the two serials. This one even used a lot of stock footage for natural disasters and things like that. But here, in the previous serial, they would sometimes use the same shot of Clark Kent ducking behind a filing cabinet to turn back into Superman in multiple instances. Anytime he changed clothes of the Daily Planet, They use that footage right down to using that same footage three times in the 15th chapter of that serial. They're still using the same footage here. They're using the same footage of Superman stopping a train. They've got some footage of Clark leaving the cockpit of an aircraft and going to the back to check for parachutes or to turn into Superman twice in this serial. So doing a lot of that to keep the overall production costs down and do it quite cheaply, which is good, because there is a lot of scene changes in these cases. Uh, If we check the bonus features on the DVDs, they even mention doing 50, 60, or even 70 different setups in a day. Now, this is tremendous in terms of production scales. A setup is literally when you set up the sets, set up the actors, set up the camera, and record a shot. A lot of modern movies, you're looking at a minimum of an hour between setups, which means in an 8 hour working day, you're doing 8 not 50 or 60 or 70 like these guys were doing. So it really is massive, massive volume, which could explain some of the issues we have. There's even a bit of blurred film in Chapter 14 where it looks like a piece of the recording equipment called The Gate wasn't tight enough, and the film started jumping around during recording. So the picture shifts and goes out of focus because the film was most likely rattling around either in the transfer to the DVD or in the initial recording. Given the overall quality that Warner Brothers put into things when they were transferring it to DVD. I suspect it was part of the initial recording. Now, the on-screen story credits here are still saying it's based on the radio series. Now, the radio series ran from 1940 till 1951. And it did have a series in 1945 about the Atom Man and the Atom Man and Metropolis. That's not the same Atom Man that we're hearing here. The Atom Man in the radio series was a thug who was basically hired and injected with kryptonite. So... Something of a precursor to Metallo from the comics. He had kryptonite power, he could use kryptonite rays, so he had the strength of Superman, but Superman couldn't get very close to him to stop him. So that's certainly not the Man they're using here. I don't know if the other storylines here were taken from the radio show. In the 1948 incarnation, they very clearly were. If they did the same in this one, it's from episodes of the radio show I haven't heard yet. I'm following the old-time radio Superman show through Adam Graham's podcast called the old-time radio Superman show, which is up on iTunes. At the time of this recording, we're just getting into the June 1948 episodes. So there may be later storylines that inspired this 1950 serial. I haven't heard them yet. This seems to be more of an original creation, and the tone seems a lot more in line with the comics from that era than with the radio show. Probably the most significant impact that this has had is in the introduction of Lux Luthor to the general audience. Up to this point, Luthor had only appeared in the comics. He was not part of the radio show. He was not part of the Fleischer cartoons. He was not part of the 1948 serials. He was in the comics, some of which were adapted into the daily newspaper comic strips. But he only existed on paper. He'd never had a voice before. He'd never been shown in motion before. And when Luther was originally created, he had a head full of red hair. And at the time, the way a lot of the comics worked, it wasn't like they are today where there's artists that are specifically working on part of a shared universe. A lot of the comics at the time stood alone. So even though you'd see Superman and Batman sharing covers in World's Finest, and there was a little bit of talk in the Justice Society comics of them having known each other, even when you look in those World's Finest comics, they didn't actually meet up to this point. So, sure, they shared a cover, but there was a Superman story by the Jerome Siegel and Jerry Schuster group, and there was a Batman story by the Bill Finger and Bob Kane group, and never the twain shall meet. They worked independently in two different houses, they didn't communicate. Even then, there were more factories named for the original creators, and they'd hire other artists to fill in on scripts just to keep the production levels high, because the comics at the time were 64 pages. So, A typical artist these days can do about a page a day in terms of pencilling. Writers can work considerably faster. Uh, Pencilling is probably the slowest part of comics. So, at the time, doing 64 pages of comics and cranking those out bimonthly monthly or sometimes monthly in the bigger titles, as well as another 16 to 22 pages on top of that to go into action comics, would have been more than one artist could handle. So they did farm out to other artists. Now, Superman's first supervillain that he fought was the Ultra-Humanite, which was originally a bald scientist who figured out a way to transfer his mind and personality into other bodies. And although he hadn't yet, the current version of the Ultra-Humanite has actually transferred his mind into a gorilla's body, or a large primate at any rate. So he was the bald scientist. Lex Luthor was just named Luthor, and he had a head full of red hair. One of the artists that was hired to come and fill in and do a story wasn't familiar with the property at all and just took the job for the sake of taking the job, flipped through some old comics, didn't pay much attention, and mixed the two up, and drew Lex Luthor with a bald head instead of red hair. That looks stuck in the comics, and that's the look that's used here. Interestingly, up to this point in the comics, Luther had only been named Luther. So even in the first few chapters of the serial, he only refers to himself as Luther. It's not until about chapter 13 and 14 that he refers to himself as Lex Luther. Now in the comics, Luther didn't get a first name until Adventure Comics issue 271, published in 1960, which was actually a Superboy story. So Lex Luther's first name started... In this 1950 serial. Uh, in the comics, he was also purely a mad scientist. Nothing else, no bones about it. Proud of the fact everybody in the world knew he was a mad scientist, right up until they went to Crisis on Infinite Earths in the mid-1980s, rebooted the universe, and at that point he became a respectable businessman to cover up his crimes. That respectable businessman cover is in place right here in the 1950 serial. I mean, yeah, he starts off as a mad scientist, he's known as a mad scientist, but when he's released from prison on parole early on, he sets up a front as a respectable Businessman running a, a TV studio. The general plot to this is that Lex Luthor has created an alter ego for himself known as the Atom Man, and it, under the identity of the Atom Man, he's masterminding a, a series of crimes. And a lot of these crimes are based on teleportation technology that he's invented. So, And there were some Other interesting points along the way, one that really stuck out at me, was a sequence when he decides to deal with Superman, but there's no genuine kryptonite left over, although he did get a chance to analyze a sample of the real stuff. So he decides to create synthetic kryptonite, but when he analyzed it, he found that there was an element he couldn't identify, so he substituted another element, namely radium, and with that element substituted, the synthetic kryptonite didn't work quite the way it was supposed to. I won't get into spoiler territory on that in terms of what happens, but it did strike me as a very familiar plot point, and it may be familiar to you too. I won't get into the details on that until the podcast that we have in August August, as we talk about Superman 3. Another point that I found very interesting in this particular incarnation, is that there's a sequence about halfway through when Luther uses his teleportation technology on Superman, and in this case, he sends him to what he calls the Empty Doom, so Unlike Star Trek, where he disappear at one point and reappear at the other, Lex Luthor is complete control, so he basically teleports Superman away, but doesn't reassemble Superman's body anywhere at any time. So Superman is pretty much gone, he's inaccessible. He does have the ability to work around somewhat like a ghost, and has limited ability to interact with other objects. But people can't see him or hear him, and he can't see or hear them. With Superman gone, Clark Kent also disappears. And the story that this takes is not one I was expecting them to see. Basically, as soon as Superman and Clark Kent have both been missing for a brief period of time, Perry White calls Lois into the office and says, you know, we've all had our, basically says we've all had our suspicions that Clark Kent and Superman are one and the same. That appears to be the case. Go write the story. It's news. We need to make sure that we publish this before anyone else. And Lois reacts like, yeah, she's always known it. Comes out, talks to Jimmy, who also reacts like, yeah, they've always pretty much figured Clark Kent was Superman. It's an interesting take. They all kind of suspect the secret, and they've been mostly playing along, somewhat for Clark's benefit, which is a really nice take, because that's one thing about the Superman mythos that always needs a good explanation is why so many investigative reporters and basically detectives can see Superman and Clark Kent so often and not put two and two together. The comics got away for it for the large part in the, the first decade or so they were being produced by actually limiting the amount of exposure people had to Superman. So Superman would be saving Lois Lane, but he'd be doing it from a distance. She'd only really see the blur of his cape, so she knew know it was him but wasn't seeing him up close and personal. Eventually they started doing that for the love interest, but most of the others weren't seeing Superman up close and personal. And Lois did suspect that Clark Kent was Superman, and a lot of the stories, especially in the 50s, were based on Clark going to great lengths to protect his secret when Lois was trying to figure it out and get confirmation for what she strongly suspected. This is a little bit different. Everyone knows it. In this case, Lois and Jimmy decide, well, you know, they haven't given up hope on Superman coming back, and it's not only their place to reveal the secret, so they conspire against Perry to convince Perry that Clark Kent is still out there and is working on a story over a long distance, and he's still here when Superman is gone to convince Perry that they genuinely are two different people. Of course, by the end of Chapter 15, they'd find a way to work around that, so that the suspicions are gone on everybody's case. But it was refreshing for me to see a take on Superman, where they don't assume he's surrounded by idiots. And yeah, these people have figured it out, but they're just playing along somewhat to humor him, and also because Superman is pretty fantastic, so you can convince them otherwise, because they don't really want to believe that Superman and Clark Kent are the same person, but they are definitely open to the possibility, and they've almost taken it as a given as soon as the simultaneous disappearance takes place. So, generally speaking, I actually enjoyed this one a lot more than I expected to. The two serials were the two silver screen incarnations of Superman that I hadn't actually watched before I started doing these podcasts. So I watched them for the first time, prepping for them. And it was, like I said, a pleasant surprise. I have not been as impressed with some of the other serials, particularly the 1949 Batman and Robin serial that we mentioned earlier. But we'll get into that in more detail in February 2014. In the meantime, our next episode of Silver Screen Superman is coming up in May and it's going to deal specifically with Superman versus the Mole Man. Now, this is the backdoor pilot for the TV series starring George Reeves, and at this point, Phyllis Coates. Later on, Noel Neal joins that TV cast as well. So it's a shorter feature. Uh, it's also in the uh, Ultimate Superman Collector's Edition, either the 14-disc DVD or the 8-disc Blu-ray set, which have everything we're going to be doing the podcast about, except these two Kirk Allen serials, the Supergirl movie for the late 80s, and the upcoming Man of Steel feature film. So please join us next month for Superman vs. the Mole Man.